Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can come together and take another glimpse of Jesus. We've seen how in the parables of Jesus, his words have been life-transforming and have given people who were down and out a second chance. And so now as we look at this story from the Old Testament and see a glimpse of Jesus from yesteryear, help us to put ourselves in the story. Help us to see that though we face struggles, though we face trials, that we can lift up Jesus in our hearts and we can raise our Ebenezer so that all can see that Jesus is clearly working in our situation and shining through us. We pray in his name. Amen. Ebenezer. No, this is not a Christmas sermon. As I think of the different struggles that we face in life, and years ago I used to ask myself, uh, really, what struggles have you had as a Christian? And I don't really want to dwell on all the struggles because as you get older, you go through different ones, and the ones in the past seem so small compared to what you're facing now, and then in the future you face some more, and those seem so big compared to what you faced in the past. And you look back sometimes and you think, wow, that was a really small ordeal. But when you're experiencing it, sometimes it can seem like a battle that is raging. It can seem like a discouraging situation. It can seem like there's no way out. David once said that he felt like he was going through the shadow, valley of the shadow of death. Job himself, as I read this week, he himself felt like he wished he'd never been born. And so there I was, having a bumpy transition to California, literally. I remember when I came out for the interview in the Whitmore Church uh, in Hayfork and Weaverville, I remember as we were getting into the airport, my family's first flight together as a family. I had flown solo before. My wife had flown as well on her own. But here we are, my wife, and we've got three kids at the time, and they're in diapers, and you got all that stuff to figure out to get through the airport, and you're wondering if you can have a stroller or this or that. You know, you get on in there, and you're sitting there, and you're there early. You've gone through all the different checks, and you're relaxing, and you're taking pictures as a family. Our first flight, you know. And then we hear this commotion where the people that were in our little terminal began to leave and going out to a whole bunch of desks out there. You know what that means, right? They somehow got word that their flight was canceled, but we didn't. So we're sitting there, and unbeknownst to us, the plane had been struck by lightning on the ground. Literally, it was struck by lightning. Before we even came out here for the interview in California, the plane was struck by lightning. It was delayed, so we had to go all pretty much all the rest of that day, get into a hotel, then get up at 3 in the morning, get back over there, go through all the checks, which they said we were too early to go into, and then we get into the plane, we come out, and by the time we get over to Reno, it's a real tiring feeling. You know how that just feels almost like you're going to get sick? Your body's just depleted, and my kids are tired, and we're there, and we get into Reno, and I'm just in a daze as I look at the, the car rental person. I'm looking at my watch thinking I've only got about 30 minutes to leave this place and, and then get on the road so I can get to the conference office for their little interview and then eventually through all the rest of the interviews. And something told me just pause, Murray, pause. And so I paused long enough to fill out all the paperwork. I even got an optional thing on the, uh, I paid for with the, uh, with the rental car. And there we are, zipping along in this rental car. Get over to the conference office. Don't have time to change because we didn't know exactly where to go. We got lost. And then began a whole series of struggles. Eventually, we did get the interview. We did accept the call out here. But that whole year was a very bumpy one. The, the airplane was really just a hint of what was to come. That year, we found that 
though I had secured housing before we left Northern California and went back to Kansas, it fell through. So then we had to find a place sight unseen from Kansas. And then we found that the rental truck, the, the conference truck was going to come not two or three weeks out, but actually the week after uh, we got back. So we're rushing around. We rush that. We get, on the, get everything in the moving truck. We zoom out. And then we find as we get to the house, not this one, but a different one up in Lakehead, that it smells like skunk and chemicals and all this stuff. And, and we're not familiar with the, the skunk weed and everything else. But somebody was brew had been brewing something in that house. And eventually it took its toll on our immune systems. We started get developing sores and different things. I sent my family up to Oregon. I began the ministry the best I could with them up there and me in a tent trailer all summer long. Finally, we got this house. And that was a whole long process of getting that house. Everything that could go wrong in a mortgage process, it seemed like it went wrong in that one. Then we moved into this house. And you can see all the digger pines around there, can't you? What's the likelihood of a digger pine falling down on the house or the shed right when you move in? Well, it did. It happened. It fell down right on the shed, demolished quite a few of our things. And then within a few weeks after that, a criminal literally drove through right here, broke through my fence over here, missed the gate, zooped through my front yard here, woke me up at 6 in the morning, went out the neighbor's fence all the way around, just a high-speed chase in California in my front yard. Well, I wasn't feeling very good. My immune system was down. I didn't know it, but I, w I was developing cancer at the time. And then what's happening is the, this fence is down. We try to take my kids on a field trip to just have a nice day off, breathe, and then some dogs came into our yard and killed off all of our chickens that we had brought from Kansas. So now we come home and we find them all dead. So the shed is down, the chickens are dead, this, and it begins to start weighing on me. And then, then I hear, I get a call way early in the morning saying that the, somebody has broken into the Hayfork Church and has set it on fire. And so I got to rush up there and deal with that. And so this is all just taking place, right? And then my wife begins to develop all kinds of pains and joint pains and all of this, and we're trying to deal with her health issues. And then I begin to feel a lump somewhere, and I say, well, I need to go to the doctor and get that taken care of. Well, cancer. So then we begin a process with cancer. My wife's health problems, my health problems. You almost think that it wouldn't get any worse. <coughs> but it did continue to have some bumpy things along the way. And... Then came 2013, and that year, after the cancer was removed, they said, we've got to do radiation on you. So, I don't know, I trust the medical people at that time. I don't, I'm sorry, guys, but I don't, I don't have a lot of trust anymore. I've uh, been through a ringer or two. Got through the radiation, and then I began developing the same joint pain and all this stuff that my wife had, blurred vision, dizziness, fatigue, and I thought, surely it's the radiation. No, it's not the radiation, they told me. It had nothing to do with your immune system, really. <laughs> well, come to find out, after a lot of tests, there was the Lyme's disease issue. They found Lyme's in my blood. So that was that whole time there. And as I thought of that, that was all in wi within an eight-month period. As I thought of all of that, I began wondering to myself, you know, could it really get any worse? And I've read Job this week, and I know it could get a whole lot worse. And you guys know it could get a whole lot worse, too. You could lose your whole family. You could lose all kinds of things. 
But one time as I was fading in and out of that drug that they gave me for my nausea and everything, the thought hit me. Murray, oh, and by the way, after the surgery, the pain meds wouldn't work, so I'm curled in a ball for days. Anyway, so a lot of things. Murray, do you still trust me? If you were curled up in a ball like this forever, couldn't get out of bed, would you still trust me? Would you still trust me? And the biggest thing for me was, would God still be able to take care of my family? Would I still be able to minister to the people I love? That was the biggest struggle for me. And so as I think of that, I think of other questions that you've probably thought. How can I trust God when life seems to be going, apparently in my view, so bad? Where can I turn to for support when I'm going through all of that? And you all have answers to these questions. You could probably throw them out at me. What should I do when, when there I am going through all that? And maybe I do have some help, but I, then I begin to feel defeated spiritually. Like somehow, Lord, I'm not, I don't feel as connected as I used to be. I'm doing everything I, I've always done, but I just don't feel it anymore. There's something going on here. It's like a spiritual cloud of darkness has overshadowed me. And it, there I am stuck in this. I'm not feeling as connected as I should. You know, you could probably add a whole bunch more questions to that. And those of you who have lived these years, you know physically when you're down how it begins to affect you emotionally and how vice versa it can happen. But where do you turn to when it seems like the battle is raging, when it seems like there is no hope? Well, we have lots of stories about this, do we not? Imagine an army that is vastly outnumbered, that is outgunned, that has, is experiencing defeat, doesn't feel connected to God, doesn't feel revived, doesn't feel like fighting anymore, and here they are engaging in a battle. First Samuel chapter 4 describes that. And, and hear what they experience corporately, maybe it will give us some encouragement individually as well. It says, And the word of Samuel was revealed to all Israel, and Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched an Aphek. This is a monumental moment in battle. Why? The Philistines are used to the battle on the plains. They're, there's people that are known as seamen. They would, they would travel the oceans and they would raid people. And they've, they've come onto the, to the coasts, what we later call Israel. And they are invading, making these raids, developing cities. And now they're venturing not in the plain region, but now they are developing a way of going into the hill country. And they are engaging Israel even in their own hill country. And you would think, at least back in ancient Near Eastern thought, the Philistines believed their gods were in the plains, the Israelites' gods were in the hills, and so they're making this step. They feel bold enough now to go into the hills, and you would think that Israel could experience a victory. You'd think that Israel could overcome them, but we're not going to find that part of the story here. Notice it says in Aphek. Aphek is a region, if you look at the pictures, the pictures show that it's a hill country with trees, not conducive to the chariot warfare of the Philistines or the ground warfare that they're used to on the flat plain, but every indication shows that Israel should have had a victory here. Humanly speaking, they could have outmaneuvered and done something in this hill country. Even though the Philistines have gone into trade routes or in the Bronze Age, even though the Philistines have vast numbers, surely the Israelites could have stood a chance, militarily speaking. And you look at other pictures there, as well, and you find, though, that the problem is this. Israel, who should have stood a chance up there in the hill country, is at a time of spiritual low. It's 
like that spiritual cloud is over them, and, they, and they, they don't, they're not as connected to God as they should be. They've been defeated spiritually because they've trusted in their own strength. You read the chapters before this, you find they've trusted the ark to save them rather than the God of the ark. They find Eli has fallen over and, ki- and, and, and killed him, um, pretty much died, fallen over backward because he was a heavy man. He was really into eating his sons were into eating the fat off the altar, and there he goes, he falls and dies because he was a heavy man. And so you find he's dead. And so who are they to look to during this time? Well, there's a hint right there in the text. It says Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Stone of help. But where is that help right now for Israel? The ark has been returned to Israel in chapter 7. We're going to find Ebenezer appears again. And this time is where we find the help takes place. Not because God wasn't willing to extend it into their situation at the time, but because they were not willing to receive it. They're the ones who had the idols. They're the ones who were were not fully committed to God. They're the ones who, under that shadow of death, did not trust God, but instead were trusting in their own own human devisings. And here we get to chapter 7, and something begins to change. That Ebenezer word gets its true fulfillment. The ark has been returned to Israel because God has literally fought upon their behalf, plagued the Philistines to the point where they say, let's get rid of this thing, and they give it back to Israel. They begin to repent and turn from their false worship. They begin to say, you know what? We can't do this in our own strength. We are not strong enough. How about us? When we're facing those trials and everything, are we really strong enough to face them on our own? Humanly speaking, you have faced things, and so have I, that physically speaking could overcome us in our own strength. And we all know the answer is that God helped us through that. And so here we find then this state of mind, this prayerful state of mind, they are now prepared for God to do something great, not because he didn't want to do it before, but because they were not ready to receive it. And so he begins to do great things for them. And it says in chapter 7, verse 6, they were gathered to Mizpah, another place, they drew water and poured it out before Jehovah. You can look into the, to the value of these drink offerings as well. But this idea of they're totally dependent upon God. They fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against Jehovah. Jehovah. Yahweh. Uh, you hear different ways of translating. I even heard uh, Vinden at camp meeting translated even a different way, which, you know, at any rate. The Lord. The Lord who made them. The Lord who formed them. The Lord who is right there in the book of Genesis all the way down. He's there, and he's the one they've rejected as king, but he, has, but, they, but he has not rejected them. He is still working. They recognize they have sinned against this Lord. And then it says, And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel actually begins to take the leadership there and pointing them to God. And so if you look at the map, you find Jerusalem is right down over there. You can look up north of that. It's got the tribes listed, Ephraim and Benjamin. Mizpah is there northwest of Ramah. And you find this is the area that the battle takes place. Mizpah, or the Valley of Mizpah, we find is near Mount Hermon. Snow-capped, uh, you find it even has snow during some warmer months. It still has a little bit of snow on there. And this, this valley down here is known as the Valley of Mizpah. We don't know for sure in archaeology where everything is at, but here we find this valley area, hill country. And here's another picture where they think that, maybe not a battle in this area, but it's a rocky hillside. You've got some... some 
hills that are in the hill country there. And you can look back there and you can even see little houses here up on the hill. And so we're talking about the hill country here. Once again, the hill country, same type of geography, but what has changed? God changed? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who has changed? Their hearts have changed. They have turned their hearts towards God. Every battle of life requires us, if we truly want to have victory, to turn our hearts towards God. It doesn't matter what sin is besetting you, what discouragement tries to overcome you, what struggle has literally besieged you and trying to take you hostage. If we turn our hearts to God and trust Him, He will deliver us. The story goes on. It says, As Philistines heard the sons of Israel had come together to Mizpah, and the lords of the Philistines went out against Israel. They've beat them before. And yeah, they had to return their ark and everything, but, but they've beat them in the hill country before. Now they come. You can imagine them coming with a little more confidence than the first time they'd ever come to battle in the hill country. And they come forth, just major numbers, armory, bronze, armor, and weapons. And they go up against Israel, and the sons of Israel heard, and they were afraid of the Philistines. Wouldn't you be afraid of them? I mean... We don't even know what physical battle really is like. I was talking to a World War II veteran, and I was reading the book Flyboys, and man, that, that's gruesome enough, but imagine hand-to-hand -hand sword combat, close combat. Look in the enemy right in the eye as you're trying to strike him down, and you've got more coming at you, and there's, there's even records of David and his mighty men, how they he would stand back-to-back, -back and they would fight off hordes of these people coming at them. Imagine having the courage to do that knowing that you're just one blow away from being on the ground and them trampling you under and killing you. And so they're afraid of the Philistines. It seemed like they were trusting in God. But now it says, the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease from crying to Jehovah our God for us. Here's showing now that though they are afraid, though they are humanly experiencing these emotions that seem to plague them, they turn to God by saying, Samuel, cry out, pray for us. Do you believe in the power of prayer? We find here in this situation there, that's what they can do. Some of you sometimes ask, what can I really do for the Lord anymore? My grandfather is old. He can't see to read. He can't do things like he used to do anymore. But you know what he still does? He still prays. And this is his finest hour. Praying and trusting, even though he cannot see, even though he is going through all kinds of struggles, and you and I have the same opportunity. When we feel like we can do nothing for the Lord, that is our finest hour. After all, what did Jesus do on the cross? What could he physically do for anybody? Nailed there. Barely able to take breaths, and yet he cries out, what? Father, forgive them. He prays. And isn't that the finest hour of the plan of salvation? when the person who is standing on our behalf can do nothing more than pray for us. And yet, we're sitting here today in an answer to that prayer. And so here, Samuel is doing the same thing. Don't tell me you can't do anything for the Lord. You can still pray. While there is breath, there is still power available to work through you. Cry out to God so that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb, offered a whole burnt offering to Jehovah, and Samuel cried to Jehovah for Israel and... and Jehovah answered him. How do we know that? They experienced victory, right? But we find there's indicators of God 
answering. And it happened as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. You're like, well, what? We just heard about that. This is called repetition and enlargement. This is the way of telling a story. It's like you, you're zooming in the camera for one little thing there, and then, you, then you, you come back and look at something a little more detailed. Okay, so you, different lenses here. They're master storytellers. It happened as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. So you, you see him offering up the offering, and now they're going to show you another thing. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. So there he is. Imagine the, the camera lens, zooming in on Samuel, offering the sacrifice, zooming in on the army, progressing towards them. That's the point of the story, is to show you this is what's happening. Right in the middle of it all, here this man is doing something seemingly crazy, offering up a sacrifice of a lamb while an army is coming towards him. Isn't he going to lead them all out to battle in victory? No. He's going to point them to the lamb. And Jehovah thundered with a great noise on that day on the Philistines and troubled them, and they were beaten before Israel. He doesn't even have to lead them out to battle. The battle is the trust. The battle and victory has been fought right there as he is sacrificing and trusting by faith in the land that will come. God then thunders and defeats the, Israelite, defeats the Philistines. And Samuel took a stone then, notice it, Set it between Mizpah and Shin. Shin, we're not sure where that's at. Mizpah, we can kind of find on map, but Shin is like a sharp point, sharp, jagged point in the original language. Somewhere northwest of Jerusalem, Mizpah area, on a jagged piece of land where everybody could see, he sets these, this stone there and names it what? Ebenezer. Why? Jehovah has helped us until now. Imagine in the years to come as people would walk by and see that stone. And they would say, well, what's that? And the little kids, you could explain it to a little kid. That's back when the battle happened and we trusted in God and he delivered us from the Philistines. Even a little kid can grasp that story. And so they would tell that story for years to come. That place called Ebenezer. And the Philistines were beaten. Hey, we just heard that in the previous verse. It's just making it clear that you know for sure they were beaten. They did not come anymore into the Lord of Israel, and the hand of Jehovah was against the Philistines. How many days? All the days of Samuel. So God didn't just stop there. He continued to fight on their behalf. And yet, as I look at it, the sequence of events makes it very clear that we have a glimpse of Jesus here. If you are reading through the Bible and a Bible reading plan, look for glimpses of Jesus. I mean, we can find them in the parables and the teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew and in the Gospels, but as you're looking through and you're reading through these stories, let it stand out to you. Because look at this sequence of events. Without God, would we say their destruction is certain? All right? Then you have a representative interceding on their behalf, right? A lamb is offered. Okay, keep going. That while the lamb is being sacrificed right there, what does God do? He, Samuel cries out to God, cries out to God on this mountain area. Cries out to God, and God answers through what? Thunder. If you haven't heard that sequence anywhere else in the Bible, then maybe you need to take and compare it to the Gospels. It's very clear that this is, almost in a way, pointing forward and giving a preview of what Jesus would do on the cross. 1 Samuel 2.10 tells us that those who strive with Jehovah shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So it's pretty clear that whenever God thunders on behalf of his people, he is fighting for them. 
He will give strength to his king and exalt the power or horn of his anointed one. And so when God thunders, he exalts his people. When God thunders, he exalts his king. When God thunders, he exalts his anointed one. And that's what we find happening there in the Old Testament. And so the conclusion is Israel is rescued. The enemy is defeated. He sets up this rock memorial for all to see. I mean, for years to come, they could see it. Eben Haezer, stone of help, because Yahweh has helped us until when? Now. Could we say the same thing? We're sitting here today because this Lord has been gracious to us. This Lord has given us victory in our lives. This Lord has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. When we were walking in darkness, like that old man in the children's story, he literally showed us the way to go. This rock, we think, was probably located north of Jerusalem. We know Mispah was there, on top of a high, jagged point. That's what Shen means, for everyone to see. And so if you look at the map, you'll find on the map, you find Jerusalem is here. Somehow we believe Mizpah is somewhere here, and Shen would be somewhere in that vicinity there as well. I believe we need to see Jesus Christ in this text. The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which how many other truths cluster? All truths. I mean, you can talk about anything from Genesis to Revelation, she says here, but they must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. Everything else is darkness unless you look at it from the light that streams back into the Old Testament from Calvary and forward from Calvary, especially the cross. She says, I present before you the great, grand monument of mercy, not Ebenezer, Ebenezer, but what's the monument? The Son of God uplifted on the cross. And while as I know that we can't just say the love of Jesus and just focus on that, it's very clear, though, that whatever else we focus on needs to have that part of it. This is to be the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers. I don't want to get into this state-approved, lovey-dovey, sermons-is-all-I-can-give type thing. But you know what? I love Jesus. And to give a message about him when it relates to the Sabbath or relates to lifestyle or relates to anything else, that's what I want to do. I want to link it totally to him. If it clusters around him, then it should have a clear link to him. And so our stone of help. Didn't Jesus come in the fullness of time? Wasn't it during a time when it was spiritually dark? We find in the desire of ages, and we find in the world that, in essence, you had this secularism, if you will, different types of gods and things, but you have this, this religion where there would be no real room for this Jesus. He came, though, in the fullness of time, he says. Did he intercede for us? Without him was our destruction certain, spiritually? Romans 3 is very clear. Wages of sin, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. We're all destroyed without him. Did he die as a lamb on the cross? Now you could argue that. You could say, well, you know, he, he, died, he kind of died as a criminal. We find, but did he make a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf? Yes. Stood in our place. On the cross, did Jesus cry out like Samuel? He cried out, but he said, Father, forgive them. Issues the statement of forgiveness, a prayer for us, for they know not what they do. And then did God answer? Yeah, he shielded his boy with dark, he shielded the son with darkness, and then thunder, and then not only that, an earthquake. 
God thunders when he's lifting up his king. God thunders when he's lifted up his anointed one. He's saying, this is the one I approve of. And then we find even the veil of the temple was torn in two. Any parallels you see there back to the story we just looked at? In essence, we were rescued through his sacrifice. Satan was defeated. We find in Revelation 12, we find that he begins to be cast down. The cross is set up. Where is it set up at? Near Jerusalem. We believe, probably more than likely according to Gordon's Golgotha, the highest point, uh, we find there might be a point north of the city of Jerusalem on the skull-shaped hill, not quite as far away as Mizpah, but nonetheless, north of Jerusalem. Is he then our stone of help? Is he then our Ebenezer? It's not here I raise my Ebenezer, my life and my story and everything that's happened to me. No, no, it's here I raise Jesus. Look what he has done for me. And so the cross stands as a stone of help. First Peter says that he's the stone which the builders rejected. Paul's pretty clear that rock was Christ. Very clear. The one that was with them in the wilderness was Jesus. The rock that they turned to for support and water when they struck it, that was to represent Jesus. He was the Lord that was with them. And so we find plenty of language about that. And we, as Christians, are told we should be foremost in uplifting Christ before the world. We should definitely then see Jesus in these texts. This truth about the Sabbath with the others included in our message is to be proclaimed but the great center of attraction christ jesus must not be left out it is at the cross of christ that mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other the sinner must be led to look to calvary of all the other things we could talk about led to look to calvary if you want to have true victory look to calvary if you want to see the true meaning of the sabbath Look to Calvary, because he's laid in the tomb right after that and rests on the Sabbath day. It's a sign of the cross. If you want to see these truths in a new light, look to Calvary. He cannot die for us, somebody once said. And what they meant was, we have to look to Calvary and allow ourselves to be crucified to have true victory. We have to be crucified with Christ. He died for us, but he, now we make the decision. He can't redo it all he, he choo- we have to choose to believe in it and to die ourselves. We should accept his righteousness, believing in his mercy. And so those questions I had at the beginning, how can I trust God when life seems to be going so bad? It's, it's simply a choice, is it not? It's a choice that you make. Where else will you turn? You can turn to the medication. You can turn to maybe even good Christian counselors. You can turn to all these different things, but at a certain point, are you going to turn to him to help you through that trial? All their cisterns are actually empty and broken. They don't provide what he provides. Where can I turn to for support when I'm facing severe trials? Calvary is the answer. He cries, Jesus cries out in his darkest trial, Father, cries out to God. Cry out to Jesus. He will hear you. What should I do when I feel defeated spiritually? You have to literally choose to remember. It's all about choice. Choose to remember what he's brought you through up to that point. When I was laying there curled up in the bed after I had the tumor removed and I, nothing would touch it, at a certain point, this foggy stuff lifted off my mind and I thought, you know what? He's brought me through so much more. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lay here and take this. I'm going to get up and live my life. And I'm going to choose to be there for my kids. I'm going to choose to be there for my church. I'm going to choose to be there for my 
my city. Choose to remember, look what he's brought me through thus far. And in a way, those past experiences serve to be an Ebenezer, something you can lift up. He has helped us until now. Lift up that thought. Raise your Ebenezer. Jesus is telling us something important here. Young people, here's your FBI answer to your question number five. Didn't Jesus say something about if he's lifted up, truth, wonderful things will happen? Didn't seem wonderful at the time, probably. And the disciples had a hard time understanding how someone dying on a crucifixion, a crucifixion death would be able to be glorified. But it says in John chapter 12, 32 through 33, And if I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. What's the point of this? What's going to draw people to himself? In John 12, 32, it talks about he's signifying what kind of death he's, if, if I be lifted up, I will draw all mankind to myself. The only reason why we have the kindness that even is exhibited in the world today, based on this many years removed from the fall, is because we find Jesus entered into humanity, became one of us, showed us a true picture of the Father, and look at the love that's actually been able to permeate our world since that time. Yeah, people have misused the name of Christianity, but there we find true love. And all men have been drawn to him. People from all nations have been drawn to him. We've all been drawn to him. And so this is the key to overcoming trials. Revelation, our scripture reading says, we overcome because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony. We overcome because we continue to lift up this Jesus. Other people will be drawn to this place and to your home and to, to hearing from you about Jesus because you're lifting him up to the world. And so there I was, bumpy transitions, right? Did it all work out? Oh, you know, I replaced that, that fence there, and we eventually got, we've got like 22 chickens now, so I guess it worked out there. How about that shed? Well, it was replaced with an insurance claim, and guess what? I have enough firewood from that fallen tree. It's still part of the fallen trees on my neighbor's yard. He splits it for me every once in a while and throws it over the fence. And so that winter when I didn't have enough energy, when I was going through the cancer stuff, guess what? There's firewood going over my fence. Did it work out? Well, yeah, I'm still splitting wood from that for this next winter. And so then what about the, the whole criminal going through my front yard? Well, it kind of pushed me to, to, uh, to do a few things in my life, to kind of put behind me, expunge my record, and get a shotgun. So <laughs> it helped me actually say, Lord, it, it was an experience where I was saying, Lord, I'm actually able to put my past behind me and move forward because even that criminal thing got me in a direction that I think I should have been. Now, you may debate with me about having a shotgun, but nonetheless, uh, you got four little ones in California with criminals going through your front yard. You, you talk to me about that later. <laughs> and we had more chases on foot through that area since then, too. But I still trust God more than I do that shotgun. And then you think about the health issues. It's amazing that I've been able to actually talk to more people about the same types of health problems because of what I went through. Finding out the struggles they're going through. Finding out that we can pray... We're praying together. We're working together through all these different situations. And you know what happened also because of this house? I was able to extend kindness and grace to the man who bought my house in Kansas because he went through the most nightmarish house-buying process that a first-time homeowner could go through. 
And yet I had just been through that with this long, delayed stack of paperwork in California business and the loan process that was from just Hades. And I can tell you right now, because I went through that, when he started going through it, I found out he was a Christian. We began praying together. Man from Kansas, businessman. And began to extend grace to him in their process. I said, don't worry about it. They told you it's going to be another week, but it's going to be four weeks. So this is what I'm going to do. And so we began working through that process with this man. Would I say everything has worked out perfectly? No. But in a way, it almost seems like a reversal. And then eventually here I found myself here. You know, of all things. And one of the reasons I took the call here was partly because, main reason I felt impressed to come, but second reason was my family. I needed to, wanted to be able to be there for them instead of wearing myself out on the road for two hours after I'm done in the evening. And so I began to think, Lord, where would you have me be? And one time when I was driving by, I said, you know, in my brain, I didn't say it out loud. I said, Lord, you know I physically can't do what I used to do anymore. I used to do three to six meetings a year, evangelistic meetings every year. I, I was just crazy, you know. I can't do that anymore. If you could somehow slow things down enough where I can be at church with my family and point people to Jesus and do meetings, yes, but, but take care of myself, then please arrange it. That was long before you guys ever even were looking for a pastor. I said, Lord, if you could do that, that'd be great. And then eventually it all worked out. And so I would think that the bumpy transition that I experienced really turned into a blessing. The Lord has helped me. He continues to help me. I continue to be able to stand here before you because of his grace. I trust him. I commit myself to him. I don't know what the future holds, but I still trust him. And the future, I believe, is beginning to be dark in this country. And so I'm still going to trust him now because I want to trust him in the future as well. Keep remembering, it's important to our faith because there's one man who did not choose to remember Robert Robinson, we find he was from 1735 to 1790. We find his age there. But he wrote a wonderful song. We'll come to it in a moment. But before he did that, he was the son of a widowed mother. And at age 14 in London, he learned the trade of being a barber and a hairdresser. Now, I mean, that doesn't sound like a whole lot back then, but, but uh, there he was doing that. And as he was doing that trade, he, he began to be convicted that he was called to the ministry. So he, he goes into the ministry at age 17, Methodist minister. And while he's pastoring in Cambridge, England, he begins to write songs and poems, and he's just a great writer. And one of them was, Come Thou Fount. And you'll recognize from that song that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. He also wrote a verse in there that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love, or God I love. And so he recognized in that song that his goal was to keep lifting up Jesus, lifting up his Ebenezer, remembering. Because if he forgot, he knew he could wander. Well, he did wander. In fact, he left the ministry. In fact, quit going to church. Uh, and at one point, a dear lady was sitting beside him and was humming this song that he wrote. And as she's humming that song, of course, it's, it attracts his, his ear. And what we find a record of is that she turns to him and says, isn't that such a lovely song, lovely hymn? She says, he says, Madam, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings I had then. 
all because, and we're not sure exactly how it happened, he quit remembering. He quit. He got discouraged. He, he didn't feel that connection with God anymore. And you know what, folks? It's not about feeling. It's about trusting him even when you don't feel it. He, I don't know if he ever chose to go back. I haven't really gotten down to the bottom of that research yet. But I don't want to end up that way, regretting and hoping that I could pay a thousand worlds if I had them to have Jesus again in my life. If you've got Jesus in your life, be thankful for it. If you don't and you want to know how to do that, then please talk to me. We can talk about that. It's very simple, just asking him into your life. And if you have Jesus, be thankful. Remember that thus far he has helped you and he will help you in the future. Lift up your Ebenezer. Lift up your testimony that says, I am with Jesus and he is with me. Our closing song is number 334. It talks about that. Um, I'll go ahead and lead you in that. If you would like to say to Jesus, I'm lifting up my mind to remember here this morning, to remember you, then please stand where you're at. Stand and say, Jesus, I want to remember you today. Number 334, Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blessing tune my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me ever to adore thee may i feel thy goodness while the hope of endless glory, joy and love, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how Great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind me closer still to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can come before you, trusting that not only you forgive us and guide us in our lives, but you help us through any struggles that we face. And you give us these memories in our minds from the past to help us remember that you've helped us until now. And so then now we can trust you to help us in our current situations that we face and in the future. Lord, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it, Lord. 
so that when you come, I will be with you, and each one here will be with you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.